0: So it is a new year, right? Happy new year. When people say happy new year to me, I usually say, well, let's hope so. Let's pray in that direction. Uh, It's 2020, which is uh, uh, awesome. Uh, There are three great things about 20, well, three things about 2022 are great, one's terrible. Uh, The first one is uh, 2020 is a leap year means you get an extra day, 366 days instead of 365. So you have 366 opportunities in 2020 to remember that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. You may think that's trite and silly, but trust me, someday will come this year where you're going to hope and pray that's true. That's number one. Number two, another great thing about 2020, this year is the year for the real Olympics right not the winter olympics but the real ones they're going to be they're going to be spoken as a southerner right who doesn't understand uh, ice dancing but anyway uh whatever that is yep yeah. <laughs> triple axel but uh but yeah, so the, so the fact is, uh, it's great. Uh, the real Olympics will be this summer. And then there's a, a, a terrible thing about 2020. And uh, I want to be very uh, direct and straightforward with you. It's an election year. Um, one of the problems that we experience in the Church of God, one of the problems we experience as human beings, is that we like to divide ourselves up into tribes. And, you know, frankly, uh, that's normal and and a a part of what we do. But um, uh, let me urge you, as we head into 2020, as you uh, get angry with one another and you uh, get uh, in some pretty intense discussions with one another, uh, to remember whose tribe you're in. And I don't mean uh, a tribe that's political. I mean... Uh, there's one tribe that you're a part of, and as Joe said, it's Jesus' tribe. And honestly, that tribe matters. The other ones, not so much. Um, And so in light of that, that's why uh, we're going to begin a year-long series on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, there was a point in time in history where the books were combined. Um, if you've grown up around churches at all, you probably are very familiar with the book of Nehemiah because everybody uses it to fundraise uh, for uh, for building projects. <laughs> uh, poor Nehemiah probably would have never written that book if he'd known that uh, preachers were going to use that to get money out of people to build buildings, which is not a bad thing, but yeah, that's what it's largely used for. Uh, The book of Ezra is almost never preached. Um, uh, And uh, sadly, uh, there's some really, some really great, uh, some really great uh, things in it. Maybe you've been worshiping here for the last 13 months and you were not here before that. Um, the last 13 months, we've done a, a project here where we followed throughout the year the revised common lectionary, and I would pick a text each week from the lectionary to preach on historically for most of our 26 years what we've done here is we've worked our way through biblical books and we're going to do that again this year so for largely the biggest part of this year we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah we'll we'll take probably some days off here or there for you know certainly some of the holidays and and uh, if other things present themselves that need to be addressed from the pulpit we'll do that but by and large this year we're going to spend our time in Ezra uh, and and Nehemiah so um i think that's um I, I, yeah, I, I look. I look forward to that. So, you may be asking the question this morning. You know, why Ezra? Well, one of the reasons why is because it's largely unfamiliar, and part of my job uh, is not just to. uh um, uh, make things interesting and to make things uh, exciting and to speak to all of the uh, uh, issues of the day. You know, I, we could do sermon series like, you know, what does Jesus have to say this morning to Bill Belichick or something like that? But 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 the fact is, my job is to teach you the whole council of God. Uh, and Ezra happens to be part of the council of God. Right. Uh Secondly, uh, the other thing to note about this is what we're going to see in the book of Ezra is, like most of our lives, there's not going to be a lot of miracles in this book. There's not going to be a lot of God showing up as angels and God, God uh, 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 sending fire down from heaven and that kind of stuff. Most of what happens in Ezra is very ordinary. Right? Which is Where, you know, the vast majority uh, of us live. And, and it's the, the, the work of God is going to be viewed, the, the ordinary work that goes on is going to be seen from a perspective with a, with a, a particular viewpoint that God is at work and that He's faithful even to people who are poor and sad and broken and a mess. Thirdly, we're also going to take a note here that in the midst of a very turbulent time, that, which is the, the book of Ezra is written in a, in a time of uh, a lot of challenge, the fact of the matter is that God is sovereign. And in fact, what we will see over and over again is that not only is God not is God, uh, God sovereign, really, Jesus is king. Let me say that again. Jesus is king. Cyrus thinks he runs the world, as we'll see as we look in this, the the Persian leader. And I'm sure there are people breathing on this planet today who think they run the world. And frankly, some of you probably think they run the world, but they don't. And that's one of the problems that we have during elections is uh, we think that stuff is of ultimate importance. And what Ezra says to us is, no, somebody and something else is of ultimate importance. Um, and then lastly, what we're going to see is the people here that we're going to look at over this, this period of time in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's going to span uh, 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 several decades. In fact, we, we won't even run into Ezra, the man, until about 85 years after what we're going to read about this morning. And so, so the fact is... Um, as, as we look at this, the people of God are going to have a mission and their mission is they're returning from exile and, and they're going back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild the temple and rebuild, uh, rebuild the city. And they think that that's going to be enough. And what we'll learn is the things that we tend to think that are enough, and that's a divine mission, that's a God-oriented thing. In the end, is not going to be enough for them to see the full restoration of the work of God and the people of God. It's going to take somebody, namely Jesus Christ uh, and His work uh, and the outpouring of the Spirit, to ultimately complete uh, the work that God uh, uh, that God is uh, beginning here. So that's. That's a that's a couple of things for us, kind of big picture things. So what I want to do before we read the text, because it, and I don't want to hit you cold with it this morning, let's. I want to set the stage for. So what's what's going on? So let's remember a few things. So when the when the book of Ezra opens, what we're going to see is we need to remember the context, and the context is the catastrophe that has befallen the people of God, right? So that in 605 B.C. and then in 587 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came and carried off most of the people uh, in Jerusalem. The 605, that's where Daniel and his friends get carried off to Babylon. Uh, they're kind of under the thumb of Babylon. They rebel. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes, sieges, sieges the city for uh, uh, 18 months And then takes it, burns it to the ground, takes everything out of the temple, wrecks the city. He takes the king, Israel's king, Zedekiah, and he marches him outside the city and he lines his sons up before him and he kills his sons. And then Nebuchadnezzar gouges Zedekiah's eyes out so that the last thing he sees is the murder of his sons. This is the people of God. These are the descendants of David, right? So what a catastrophic uh, situation. Zedekiah fades away. We never really hear much about him. So the people are carried away to Babylon. Their city's in ruins. Their temple is destroyed. How are they going to live and work uh, in a place that's totally alien to them? How are they going to worship? How are they going to think of themselves when so much of their identity and rightly so was built around the fact that God had given them a land, that God had given them an inheritance, that they were his unique people and that they experienced his presence. They experienced his power right there in Jerusalem through all of the worship and the things that God did there among them through their temple and all of that. And now all of that's gone, right? But beyond that, just imagine what it's like for these people. This is all they've ever known. And now they're carried off and they are living in Babylon under the oppressive rule of the Babylonians. Well, Psalm 137 tells us a little bit about what that life was like. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, as time goes on, And as Ezra opens up, it's been 68 years since those last people were carried away. 68 years. What were you doing in 1952? Right? 68 years. These people that are alive there in Ezra's time... Most of them know almost nothing about Israel, about Jerusalem, about the temple, and probably about the God that they've heard about. Right? Sixty-eight years. So, on the willows there, we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, "Sing us one of the songs of Zion." And then this great question, I think, that kind of sums up in many ways the the exile. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So they've lost their identity. There was a point in time in the history of God's people there during the reign of of David and Solomon where they were literally a world power. They were one of the dominant forces in the world. And now they are not a nation. Imagine... The United States, Washington, D.C. being burnt to the ground. All of our leaders carried off and we are no longer a political, cultural entity. For 68 years. Okay, that's the catastrophe that, that, that we're talking about. And that's the thing that, that's, that's happening here. Well, it's been so long since they've been carried away in exile that Babylon, the nation that came and carried them away, now has fallen to the Persians, modern day Iran. That's ironic. And so, um, now the people, you know, their, their oppressors have just changed from being Babylonians now, uh, uh to being Persians. And there they are, 68 years away from their homeland. Really, honestly, as historians have said, night has fallen on the nation of Judah and Israel. They're no more. They essentially no longer exist. And so that's the situation uh, when the book of Ezra opens for us, right? Um, back, one, one more thing, quick, Brian, go back. Uh, 538 BC, that's where we are when we begin reading uh, uh, this morning. So Ezra 1, verses 1 through 11, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... And rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now let me just say something about that right off the bat. You may read this and you may think, wow, Cyrus, this Persian king knows the God of Israel. He wrote dozens of these, citing the gods of whoever else was carried off to exile in his country. Because this is smart send them back religious freedom, let them worship whatever God they want. As long as they pay their taxes and do what they're supposed to, I don't care. And to give you an idea of how little he knows and understands and really cares about the God of Israel, what does he say about him? He's the God who's in Jerusalem as opposed to the God who's in Cairo, or the God who's in Amman, Jordan, or the God who's in Paris, or the God who's in Washington, D.C. At best, the Lord is a regional deity that this group of people there in this area kind of find interesting and they worship him. And we're all going to, you know, that, that's okay. So he's doing this across the nation. But it, and this is this is something that um, is a smart uh, political uh, move on on his on his part right and so and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the levites everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver with gold with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Now, that's what people did back then. When when I come and sack your city, that means my God is better than your God. And so we're going to take all your God's trinkets and put your God's trinkets in the temple where my God is so he can laugh at you, Right? So that's what they did, uh, except for the Ark of the Covenant, which we know was buried out in the desert in Egypt so that Indiana Jones could find it before the Nazis did. Right. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithradath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a thousand bases of silver, 29 censers. 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400, a lot of pots and pans in the temple, right? All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia uh, to Jerusalem. So let's look at what's going on here. So first things first, Uh, uh, Cyrus uh, is doing this across the board. It is his policy to do this. He thinks this is smart policy. He thinks this is the way to do things. He doesn't know. If you were to get up uh, and to read the uh, Persian daily newspaper, when this pronouncement came out, uh, you you there would be no mention in the paper that God did this. There would be no mention of the God of Israel at all, except to say that the people that worship that God, they're going to get to go back to their place. But the fact of the matter is, what 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 is happening here is and what the, the challenge to us is to view history uh, as the way it is and not the way we think it is. You see, what we think is happening and what we think is most important in the world is politics. Culture. Economics. And that the fate of our lives hangs on that. When the fact of the matter is, what's really happening here is is something else. That there is a God and that this God is king and he directs the affairs of men. You see, what we read here is, is that the Lord stirred him to do this. Friends, I want you to understand something today. Jesus is king, and the Bible says to us that he turns the hearts of our leaders as easily as he turns the course of a river. He's king. He directs the affairs of the world, and what he is doing is what really matters, Now, what what is profound about that is, for most of us, we don't believe that. And I'm certain for God's people who are 68 years away from worshiping, being a part of his community there, it hasn't occurred to them either. But the reality is, the movement of history, the movement of our lives, is directed by someone who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. So the Lord is behind all of this movement, all of these things that are happening there for his purposes. So what we, when we read there that, that the Lord stirred this, he used a pagan, uh, uh, godless in many ways, or maybe he had too many gods, leader to accomplish his purpose. And why did he do that? Well, God had promised that he would do this. We don't have time this morning to read Jeremiah 25 and 29, but God had said even before the exile happened that after a a certain period of time, God would overthrow the Babylonians and that he would restore his people back to their country. God keeps his promises. Let me say that again. You may think, that your life is spinning out of control. You may think that the world is spinning out of control, but I am here to tell you this morning that there is a God who sees you and who knows you, who holds the world in his hand, who holds your life in his hand, who holds the universe in his hand. And you know what? There's a nail hole in that hand because he loves you and he loves his people And he orders his affairs and he keeps his promises because the most important issue in the world today is not what's happening in Washington or Tehran. It's what's happening right here because God orders these affairs for his purposes, not for a political end, but to care for and to provide for his people, the church. This is where it's at. The kingdom of God is where it's at. The kingdom of Washington DC or the kingdom of Paris, France or the kingdom of London, England is important, but it's secondary. On God's heart today is His people and the kingdom, His kingdom advancing. That is of primary importance. Anxiety, fear, anger, and bitterness overwhelms us when we forget that. When we think, no, these other things are the things that are most important, right? God is doing this because he said he would do it. Are you afraid this morning? Are you? Uh, a Twitter, uh, what do you call it? Uh, trend, trend what a dumb word uh a thing that's trending on twitter today is world war 3 do you know that world war 3 are you afraid are you afraid well the god that we're here to worship this morning One of the key characteristics about him, in fact, in many ways, maybe the most key characteristic about him is, is that he is always true to his word. And if he makes a promise, you can rest assured he will keep it. Now it took him 68 years to do this, but he kept his promise. I'm here to tell you today that in 2020, your God has promised to you that he will be with you that he will be with you until the end of the age and come what may that promise will be fulfilled. And I guarantee you today, whether you are sick and dying, whether you are terrified and anxious, whether you are broken by your own sin, if you are in Christ today, you can rest assured that your God has said he is with you and he is for you. And that promise is sure. We can rest in that today. Now, there is much turbulence, much difficulty that we face. But the reality is the purpose of God is in in moving events as he does is for his glory and for the benefit of his people. We can take courage in that today. Next slide. Not only is God moving his people, not only is he challenging them and not only is he moving events, but he's also providing for them. Just like the people of God, when they left Egypt and the the Egyptians gave them stuff, Cyrus has said, listen, it's going to be hard for these people to travel from Persia all the way back to Jerusalem. So give them stuff. So the people that are there make offerings and, and give to this handful of survivors, as he calls them, survivors. That, that doesn't sound real strong, does it? That doesn't, that doesn't sound like, wow, these people really got it together. They're the survivors that are barely hanging on. Give them the stuff that they'll need to get back, uh, to Jerusalem. Now one of the things that you need to note about this is not everybody returns. In fact, my guess is, and from what I've studied and read about this, the vast majority of people, God's people, the generations of people that have been there for 68 years don't. They stay where they are, and you would probably too. 68 years, probably got some businesses there, probably married Babylonians or Persians, Uh, it's pretty comfortable there. Uh, It's the center of world power, center of world commerce. Uh, And it's, and, and you've just never really known anything else. And there's this distant God who promises you his presence and his care to go to a place you've heard about, but you've never seen. Now, I think, I think the vast majority of those folks stayed right where they were. But just as God stirred some people, stirred Cyrus to do this, he stirred some people to hear his call and to go. And then we have this crazy list of all the pots and pans. (laughs) Now, as I read this this week, I I thought about that. I I bet God's people, as they laid out all the pots and pans, (laughs) Uh, We're kind of embarrassed because just imagine that everybody's doing this, that Cyrus is breaking open his museums and his storehouses and all this stuff. And so all the cultures and all the peoples that they've oppressed and they brought there, they're bringing their gods out too. I bet their gods look cooler. You know, enough said, fertility gods. But that was exciting. And you're one of God's people, you got a spoon and a bowl. (laughs) <laughs> right? You're like, yeah, this this is what we worship our God with. We got this, some bowls and some spoons over here. And, oh, we got a censer that we burn some incense in, right? Now, why in the world would, would Ezra want us to think about the 5,400 pieces of pots, bowls? Why, why go to all that trouble? Well, if God cares about pots and bowls, How much more does he care about you? How much more does this matter? How much more do you matter? You, you're tempted all the time to think you don't matter and that, that somehow or other that, that the sweep of history and the sweep of events are just so big that you're just caught up in it. Well, the fact of the matter is this God who moves Cyrus to do this knows your heart, your fears, your story. If he's interested in pots and pans, how much more so is he interested in the lives, the struggles, the sins, and the failures, the fears, and the anxieties of his own people? And then the text ends today with, I think, one of the, the, uh, the phrase, from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And in many ways, frankly, that is the story of our lives. You see, what Babylon becomes comes to uh, represent uh, in the Bible is the world of man living in independence from God. It, it is the it is the world of, of of living for what we can see, the power, the comfort, the pleasure, the reputation, uh, the achievement that that we can focus our attention all upon those things. And they're here and they're now and they're achievable. And that what we read, actually, you know, that that, that's a pretty powerful and profound uh, uh, attractant to us. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the last words in the Bible describe that city, that place of, of living independent from God, living independent from the gospel, living independent from Jesus Christ, that that is such a profound thing that all of history as the new Jerusalem comes to spread across all of the universe, that Babylon... That city has fallen. Now, it would have never appeared to these people that that comfort, that place, that center of power would ever fall. Because here they are, they're going to go on a pilgrimage, on a road leading through the desert to a city in ruins. To a city that still has the scorch marks on what few bricks are left standing from what the Babylonians had done 68 years earlier. Um, There's no water. Probably no walls around the city. Uh, No, no. Nothing, really. And if there are any of these people who are making the trip that remember what Jerusalem was like, they're really old by now. And yet God moves in his people. And he says to us, I'm making for you a home. I'm making for you a city. I will be the one who founds it for you. I will be the one who builds it for you. And, and, and it will be everlasting and eternal. And it will be a place for you to be present with me and me to be present with you forever and ever and ever. And so this pilgrimage that we see here is kind of a, a descriptor, not only of these people making this historical move, but it is really a picture spiritually of our own lives that God slowly but surely over time is moving us from Babylon, independence, powerful, human uh, uh, achievement as the core of it, to the place of brokenness where the power of God is made manifest in us. We come now to the Lord's Supper, and again, I want to say that as we read these words and we confess our sin and we hear the words of encouragement and we eat this little piece of bread and we drink this little cup here today, many of you uh, find this to be boring and rote. Many of you find it to be very powerful. Many of you just find it to be a church thing. Today, I want you to think about it this way, that what we are doing here today is some of the most important work happening in the world today. Wherever God's people are gathered, wherever they are proclaiming the gospel and wherever they are eating and drinking to the forgiveness of their sins, uh, God's heart and attention is locked in on that. Really, what we do here today is an act of defiance and not the kind of defiance that we think of, but the kind of defiance against our own hearts and our own misunderstandings to say our sins are forgiven. Our Jesus has lived and died for us, and that is what defines us, not all these other things. The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's confess uh, our sins together by using the confession of sin that's uh, in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. Almighty and merciful Father, you created us for fellowship with yourself and one another, but we rebelled and made enemies of our Maker and each other. We have despised your providence, doubted your promises, and become a law unto ourselves. We believe that human wrath would work the righteousness of God and so have taken matters into our own hands. We are thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, and deeper than all our sins. Grant us repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we may desire what is good, love all that you love, and gladly follow where you lead. Amen. believer, hear the good news. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name and he gave it to his disciples. We eat this bread and we drink this cup to help us on our pilgrimage, to nourish us, to remind us of what's true, and to encourage our hearts in a world and in a life that is often, uh, well, quite, quite difficult and quite challenging. So here's the thing. Here's the deal today. Uh, when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're saying that the king of the universe identifies with us. The one who reigns, the one who moves hearts, the one who moves kings, he is concerned for us. And he is so concerned that he gives us this opportunity to be encouraged and to be reminded today of his great love for us, that he died so that our sins could be forgiven. All of them. All of them. All of them. What's most important in the world today? What's most important in your life today? Well, Jesus gives us this to help us see that and be encouraged by that. If that's your hope and that is what you cling to, even if weekly this morning, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere. Uh, Jesus invites you today to taste and see his goodness. Uh, As the uh, elders and deacons come down front this morning to assist me, let me remind you uh, that the outer ring is wine. uh, The inner rings are grape juice. All the bread uh, is bread that is gluten free.